Hi everyone, we're almost at the finish line for season two of Slow Stories. Today's episode touches on important themes that I plan to put into practice all summer long. But before we get into the interview, I'm thrilled to introduce my dear friend and renowned visual designer, Veronica Souza, who's going to kick things off by sharing a recent rediscovery from a cookbook author that she loves. Here's Veronica. and I'm a designer for alternative health and wellness brands. Aside from design, I've always been fascinated by how the things we think, the food we eat, and the activities we do impact our health and well-being. That's why I originally began baking sourdough bread and I recently came across Sarah Owen's work. Sarah is a fantastic baker and writer. She published two cookbooks on sourdough and has a new one coming out this year. I usually look through her books on the weekends, browsing the different recipes to make. But this time, as I opened her most recent book, Toast and Gem, I came across something that I totally missed. It was her manifesto. And she calls it a manifesto of crumbs. In the manifesto, she beautifully talks about food, health, and the power of choice. To think about your intentions, to slow down and examine the fundamentals. Being in a big city with the constant noise in a state of stress, sometimes hangry, I thought about how it's so easy for us to turn the autopilot switch on and go to the same places every day, to cook and eat the same things, just kind of give in into our routines. That taking the time to slow down and act with intention when it comes to anything really is a pretty powerful act. It's leaving life completely conscious and celebrating that. Here's a section that I love reading from her manifesto. She says, we have the power to do something bold and daring. We can bake a loaf of bread or make a pot of jam. Being involved in what we eat is an opportunity to engage creativity with the better aspects of contemporary culture. Every ingredient will have an intended purpose and non-identity. It is an opportunity to release in leisure to nourish the body and the spirit. It's an opportunity to say I choose and celebrate life. Thanks so much again to Veronica for sharing. Again, the book she referenced is Toast and Jam by Sarah Owens. Now here's my conversation with Michael Ventura of Applied Empathy. We're often told that developing a thick skin is crucial to being able to weather the difficult and at times cutthroat business climate. But in the heart of downtown Manhattan, Michael Ventura is combating this apathetic outlook by infusing and applying empathy in new and pragmatic ways. As the founder and CEO of Subrosa, a brand strategy and design practice that believes deeper understanding creates better solutions, Michael isn't a stranger of putting this idea into practice. Enter Applied Empathy, a methodology developed by Michael and his team that arms professionals with the tools and framework they need to harness and lead with empathy in the modern workplace. In today's episode, we spoke about the development of this practice and how it inevitably helped Michael to apply this idea more holistically throughout his personal and professional life. And of course, we also discussed content's role and how we can all become more empathetic and thoughtful storytellers, both online and offline. So without giving too much away, enjoy my conversation with Michael Ventura. 
So when we started, it wasn't uh, a, a word we used or a, a part of the playbook here at all. We were, you know, by and large, uh, an organization designed to help companies solve marketing and communications problems. And we, at a certain point, a couple of years into the business, realized we needed to have some way of understanding how our work comes to bear more than just like good ideas on a page. And so we undertook a process to really look at our own business and understand where does our best work come from? And what is it we're doing that makes our good work good and our not so good work not so good? And in that analysis and that deep dive and that soul searching that we did, we came back to time and time again, this idea of empathy. And so instead of just commercializing it and running out in the world and trying to like say, hey, we're now like empathy people, uh, we said, um, let's really make sure we understand this because everybody's got some deck that they use to talk about mm -hmm. themselves. And on like slide three, there's going to be some word or phrase that you put in italics and that's like your special sauce, right? And we were like, let's not do that. Resist the urge to just like kind of coin a phrase. And instead, let's see if we can get ourselves into an academic climate where we can actually study this and blow it out in a way that really helps us understand it more deeply. And so we ended up teaching a course at Princeton. And that was a 12-week undergrad course called Applied Empathy. And we taught it for three semesters. We team taught it across four of us here at the studio. And it was a great opportunity to field test our thinking, to learn, to improve, to realize what works and what doesn't work when it goes into practice um, with a bunch of students who were not, not afraid. I mean, there's one if there's one thing that undergrad students aren't afraid to do is tell you how they feel. And so we, uh, you know, we, we learned a lot on the battlefield doing that and then ultimately took it to West Point as well. Yeah, and I'm sure it was something that people were surprised to practice in those different contexts. Yeah, it's funny. The Princeton folks more so than the West Point folks, which would not have been my guess in the beginning. Uh, but I think that the Princeton students were, by virtue of the way that academic environment functions, really keen to go vertically deep very quickly in whatever it was that was their major. So computer science, mechanical engineering, psychology, whatever it was, like we had uh, students who were really vertically attuned, perhaps prematurely, you know, like, the, like there's something really great about being 19 or 20 years old and being able to study anything you want. And, and some of the students kind of had already like really committed to their, their path for their career. Whereas at West Point, while those students there were also very clear that like I am studying biology or I'm studying you know, computer science, they also are all at a leadership academy that ultimately graduates you as a officer in the military and someone who will be responsible for up to 40 lives within six months of your graduation. So the value that they put on a leadership skill like empathy was so high and so um, sort of like voraciously consumed that it, it was mind-blowing. Yeah, and I'm sure when you're in an environment like that, you're almost craving permission to go there and practice empathy in that way. 
Do you have any tips for those who may be struggling to go there in terms of creating more trusting and empathetic environments in their own work? Yeah, I think the the most important one that I come back to time and again, and it sounds super simple and like almost like a, a non uh, you know like a non event is ask good questions and really listen to the answers. Um, and I think that that's like I know it sounds simple, but what happens with where empathy often falls apart is in one of two ways: either we are asking the wrong questions because we've already let our bias inform the uh, the answer we want to hear and so we're got we're leading the witness to some degree or mm-hmm. uh when the answer comes we're really just half listening and planning what we want to say and how we're going to respond and show everyone how smart we are and so one of the things that we try to do with people is to help them get good at perspective taking by being aware of their bias, asking the questions that will give them the data they actually need to understand someone else's perspective, and then to use that to help inform decision making. Easy. It's it's, yeah. it's easy on paper. It's yeah. a lot of unlearning that I think comes along with it that it's it's not hard to do. It's It's just sometimes hard to undo what's already been done first. Absolutely. But I think it's a process worth exploring and I actually want to back up a little bit for those listening who might not know much about the framework of applied empathy. Can you just give us a little overview on the concept and the archetypes and how the overall practice has evolved? Yeah, sure. So we think of it like more of a toolkit than a process, right? There are a variety of different methodologies and frameworks and all that stuff that strategists like us love to create, but we don't have a linear way we approach every single project uniformly. And instead, we think of it more like how design thinking and human-centered design is really a a set of uh, frameworks and approaches and different methodologies and different ways of testing and doing things. And it has built a toolkit for designers to think and act that way. In the same vein, we've done that with the idea of empathy. And so we define applied empathy as self-aware perspective taking to gain richer and deeper understanding. And what's important to call out is that there are different types of empathy that exist, psychologically speaking. There's something called affective empathy. And affective empathy, with an A, is um, what sometimes you might think of as kind of like golden rule empathy, which is you're sad, I've been sad before. When I was sad, I wanted people to treat me this way, so I treat you that way. And that's where empathy, I think, gets a bad rap because in pretty much every circumstance like that, empathy is often a a, a, a reflection of what you would want, right? And that's actually not empathy, right? Like the, the golden rule effect of that is like taking that example, if you're sad and I've been sad before. Maybe when I'm sad, I want to be consoled. Maybe when you're sad, you want to be left alone, right? But if I haven't done the work to really perspective take, if I'm just projecting what I think I would want if I was in your shoes, well, then that's not really giving you what you need. And so that's the sort of the folly or that's the most common way people think about empathy. And so we have to kind of debunk that when we do our work and instead come in and say, there's lots of ways to be empathic. There's lots of different tools and resources we can give you. But the most important thing is that you need to train this as a cognitive skill to drop your own desires and really 
gather insight from this other person or this other group or this other perspective and then use that to inform the way you operate. So one way we've done that is by developing a set of archetypes. And these seven different archetypes are different ways of eliciting empathy, eliciting understanding. And unlike a Myers-Briggs or a Strengths Finder or a DISC assessment or any of those other sort of personality tests, um, we don't think that anyone is any one archetype. What we're trying to do is train people across all seven so that you can start to have a deeper toolkit. And on some occasions, you might need to behave more like the inquirer, who's a great question asker, right? Really knows how to go deep and and ask the right questions. Whereas on another occasion, you might need to be the convener, which actually is the, the skill of knowing how to create the environment where people feel comfortable enough to share the right information with you. Right. So like some people on our team who are we staff architects and spatial designers and user experience designers and, you know, those types of folks are thinking about environmental uh, elements all the time. Right. How do we create the environment that brings forth the understanding we want to have, that brings forth the kind of perspective we want to gain on something, right? And then once you do that, then you've got to maybe show up and be a good inquirer and ask a good question. Maybe you've got to show up and uh, uh, be a confidant and be a great listener. But these are all different things that work interchangeably so that ultimately you become a more rounded, empathic thinker and, and actor. Yeah. And do you find yourself leaning into one of the archetypes more lately for any reason? I think I like am naturally predisposed to uh, the seeker, which is um, the one that is kind of willing to test, uh, experiment a little bit in the way of being daring, being provocative, trying to get out of your comfort zone, learn things uh, in a way that feels very entrepreneurial. I think that's uh, inherently a, a way I learn about the world and a way I learn about other people is by understanding their comfort or discomfort with those types of things. What are you pushing up against? What are you uncomfortable with? What are you not willing to be daring about? Right. That gives me a lot of insight into how I can help and how we can create the safe environment for people to be brave enough to grow. Yeah, and you also mentioned in the book that empathy really depends on context and environment. So I'm wondering if you've found a kind of ebb and flow regarding how people respond to empathy based on where they are in their lives. Yeah, the <clears throat> the past 18 months have been a very dynamic time uh, for, for working in this type of work. The diversity and inclusion issues that have emerged on the heels of the me too movement and black lives matter and the, just the, you know, the, the knee jerk reaction to the present, the, the present American administration uh, has led to a lot of people looking for more ways to bring empathy into their, into their organization. Because I think what we have as a culture gotten maybe perhaps a little too comfortable with is the, the, the perspectives of our bubble are enough, right? And and everyone's kind of working in their own bubble or their own ecosystem. And so how can we now actually take perspective of other bubbles and of other ecosystems? Because otherwise we're just sitting in well-designed echo chambers, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and something I've been seeing just because my work exists there a little bit more is that when you add content in the digital landscape into everything, it just adds a whole other layer of complexities. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on content's role in all of this. Um, I think almost more than role, what content's responsibility is in all of this is important. I think that brands have a responsibility now more than ever to be really thoughtful and responsible with the type of content they create and the stories they want to share with the world. There are, you know, loads of, of tone deaf missteps. You know, the one, the first one that comes to mind, which isn't like yesterday's news, but it is a little further in the rear view mirror was that, uh, that, uh, campaign that Pepsi did with Jenner. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like couldn't have been more tone deaf. Um, but how did that not get caught? Right. How did not one person from the account execs at the ad agency to the clients at Pepsi to the creatives who were shooting it, like it got through a lot of hoops. And that was that. And, and, and that's terrifying to me that in as uh, established organizations as those were, either the muscle of asking that question or perspective taking on this topic had become so atrophied that it just couldn't even catch it or that the culture was such that questioning it was not permissible. Either way, that's a failure, right? And so I think content has to, and content creators and storytellers have to make sure that they maintain a uh, a constant and and ready perspective taking on what they're coming up with so that it is uh it is perpetuating the right things in the world and the right behaviors in the people who consume that content yes for sure and just based on all the conversations i've had with the brands that we work with that connected editorial and have featured on our storytelling platform there really is this challenge to find a balance and being thoughtful about that storytelling while still feeling the pressure to constantly publish content to be seen and to keep up with competitors and now i think that's kind of led us to take a position on the slow content movement and i'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this idea of slow content and how you think we can use content generally as a tool to create more empathy in our hyper-connected age. I hadn't come across it much until I knew that we were going to be speaking. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the things that I think about as the word slow for me, the, I mean, obviously the, the first place you go from like an origin story of, of how slow has been used in modern, um, the modern zeitgeist and context has been the slow food movement. Right. And that obviously that's sort of the, the metaphor for this. One of the things that um, a couple of the elements, actually not just one that came up as I thought about that one was the, the proximity to where your food comes from and the and the patience and the time and the connection to the land and the connection to the people and the connection to the maker right in many ways um or at least the tender maybe is a better way of putting it um all of that plays really nicely into this idea of slow content right and making sure that it's not more for more sake and that um you know being connected to the providence of where the story is coming from and being authentic in the telling of it and making sure that it is 
crafted with attention and care and uh, and intent. Um, you know, all of those things I think really speak very truly and 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 resonate with me as a as a way of thinking about how content gets made. Um, the other thing I'll add too is. And this is like perhaps just playing the uh, or beating the um, uh, food metaphor a little too hard, but I it made me think of uh, the heirloom quality of of things in uh, as well. And I don't know if you've been following the trend uh, in um, there are a couple food delivery uh, businesses like direct to consumer businesses that um, like there's one called uh, I think it's Misfit vegetables or something mm-hmm. like that and basically it's like all the stuff that far, that supermarkets won't buy because they don't look uniform and um and so you can basically help buy these things that have been grown organically but you know not every not every eggplant looks like the shape of the eggplant that you see at the supermarket right some grow differently but they're still great eggplants they just can't no one will buy them if they go to a supermarket because they don't look like all the other ones and so i thought that that was an interesting way of thinking about this too that there is there's heirloom stories and there's misfit stories that uh have these tendrils that really kind of go into communities or go into the way we think and operate in the world that challenge our perceptions of what a what a story should be or could be right and uh and i think it's interesting to play with with words in that way all of what you just said has been percolating in my mind about what slow content could mean. And I was actually drawing from the slow fashion movement, just seeing how brands in that space educate consumers on how garments are made and how a consumer's investment in that brand creates more jobs and just has this ongoing impact. So yeah, I think it's a really important way to think about it just for the sake of giving us permission to slow down And in this regard, slowing down and being mindful about our investment in content creation and content consumption at the very least. Right, exactly. So one of the things that we do very early on for pretty much every project is a audience map where we say, who are all the people that we have to take perspective from in order to think holistically about this problem? And in the beginning, that was a very mechanical and clunky and awkward and 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 inelegant process for us it has since become second nature right like there people here now look at a, a piece of work and can say hmm are we thinking about the shareholders when we say something like that or have we considered what you know what the b2b landscape might say if 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 this brand strategy takes shape in this direction right and it's become this um muscle that has gotten trained in the organization that I say this in a lot of my talks when I when I go out and talk about applied empathy empathy slows things down before it speeds them up you're going to have to take 15 more minutes in the meeting you're going to have to ask that question you don't want to have to ask you're going to have to listen to the answer you don't want to listen to you're going to have to do that stuff that makes you a little uncomfortable in the beginning but after a little while that discomfort goes away and that second nature starts to kick in and you know that that's the right thing to do and starts to become just part of the process and so um it's it's not necessarily about like slapping your fingers and saying, now we're using empathy, it is only effective when it becomes a practice that is continually worked and flexed and grown into the, the, the fabric of the organization. 
I'm wondering too, when you really are slowing down and making a conscious effort to be in the moment with your team or with clients or shareholders and so on, if there's any one question that you hope people in that space would ask one another to spark those empathetic conversations. Good question. Um, one thing I, I ask a lot is who, who are we not thinking about? I think that that's often, you know, you think you've got all your bases covered, but sometimes you don't. And I think it's helpful and it's inclusive to make sure that we are always asking ourselves that. Another one that I know some folks on our team are always very keen to drill into is what about this makes you uncomfortable? Yeah. Not just because we want to make people comfortable, but sometimes because we want to make them uncomfortable, right? And like, tell us what that is. There might be some real key learning in that. Like, oh, that that aspect of this strategy makes you uncomfortable. Why? Well, because it's going to mean that we have to retool, you know, uh, the entire way our supply chain works. Okay. What's uncomfortable about that? Well, it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to cost a lot of money, but is it the right thing to do? Yeah, of course it's the right thing to do. Well, then let's talk about that, right? And it kind of it then all of a sudden you're in the meat of the the conversation with someone. I have a fashion brand I'm talking to later today about this very topic about like there there are some things they know they should be doing, but they are going to take time and money that they weren't necessarily thinking of spending in the next eighteen months, but now they're thinking about it because they've realized that even though it is not in the plan, it should be the right it should be in the plan because it's the right thing to do. For sure. And kind of building on that idea, is there any one question that you hope people ask you more often personally when you're in these meetings? <laughs> um, I, I thought of like 10 snarky things all at once, and then I decided not to say any of them. Uh, I, would say, I would say the thing that people don't ask us as a service provider, and, and, and I always am very conscious of the fact that we are there to provide a service, and this is a service business, is what would we do if we were in their shoes? Because I think a lot of the time what we are counseling people and providing them from a consulting standpoint is based on everything we understand, including you and, and how we understand you as a client or a client team and how you operate, this is our recommendation. But a recommendation for you, not for us. If I was the CEO or the CMO of this organization, would I still do it the same way? Sometimes they don't care, right? Because they they want what's right for them and that's fine. That's part of doing our job. But I do think it would be interesting for them to take perspective on how someone else would do their job. That would probably open up a lot of dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, there's so much more we could dig into regarding this topic alone, but for the purposes of this interview, I want to close things out with one final question that's become central to these conversations, and that is, why do you think slowing down our relationship to content will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? Everything is only going to get faster around us, and it is incumbent upon us to be our own governor of our pace. And if we don't control our consumption and our ways of looking at and uh, digesting information, the din and the, the volume will just be so high that nothing will matter. And so slowing down to actually consume the right thing at the right pace is a 
like I said earlier, for empathy, a muscle we have to train. That was my conversation with Michael Ventura of Sabrosa. When it comes to applied empathy, there's a lot more to dig into, and you can follow along with Michael at We Are Sabrosa and the Michael Ventura on Instagram, and order the applied empathy book and card deck online at wearesubrosa.com. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and we'll be back soon with our final episode of season two. 